0: Hey, Rad. What's up? BCAAs, bro. Mm. Sounds right. Branch chain amino acids. Okay. Talk to me about them. Pre-workout, post-workout.
1: The building blocks to all proteins in the human body. Branch chain amino acids. There's Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of them. And there's disputes over which ones are essential amino acids and which ones aren't. But um, essentially, we need them in order Mm -hmm. to even be able to do stuff Mm -hmm. and things. Mm -hmm. It's really scientific. Mm Hmm. Actually, your cousin, the bodybuilder, hit me to him. He's like, yeah, take these before and after workout. Good energy boost. How long have you been taking them? On and off for a year. You like them? I do. Cool. They also fall on the nootropic scale. You know, we talked about those before. Mm-hmm. A little brain boost from the aminos. Sounds.
0: I, I, I actually do notice that part. Hmm. Cool. I might try Sounds fun. In your mouth. <laughs> in <the> mouth. <laughs> Welcome
1: back to More in Common, a podcast where we seek to inspire thoughtful and honest conversation that leads to action and positive change ultimately exposing that we have more in common than that which divides us even if rooted in differing points of view if you want to know more about us you can go to our website and check us out at more in common pod.com on that website you can find apparel that we've made you can find our blogs you can find our podcast uh, you can pretty much find everything that there is uh to know about us anything
0: else you add to that Keith yeah and I'd say just just as we like to ask um, one way to to support us definitively is to share Mm. share with one person ask them to share with another if you're if you like what we're doing and you want to continue to help us spread the message that we're trying to trying to deliver so So we've got a
1: guest today, but before we get to that, as always, we're going to talk about the last episode, which was Kwame, a.k.a. Coach. And Keith, I want to ask you what you took away from
0: that conversation with Kwame. His sincerity, Mm. like his his ability to be vulnerable like that, especially amongst men. Right. And we talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about that in the episode and he did it in a, in a very sincere and honest way so that other people, whomever it may be, if it's one person, if it's a hundred thousand people can learn from his story and hopefully take one nugget and, and, and allow that to positively impact their lives. And I think that's the other piece too is He's not looking to deliver any specific message. He's not looking to to land on an agenda mm-hmm. or, a, you know, he just – he hopes that his experiences, his positive the positive and negative, better impact other people in any way that's possible. So, he's very open in sharing a story and I thought – I think that's a very powerful thing. How about you? All of that and
1: mental health, like the, the importance, we, we keep – we keep coming back to this and and the importance of mental health and there's a there was an aspect for him of self evaluation, but then he actually talked to somebody to get some help because obviously he had some pretty extreme um, uh, actions he was taking. So he went and got some help and wanted that. So that stuck out. And then the the multi faith family, you know, the was it Pentecostal? There was. Uh, Buddhist. Buddhist. I mean, Baptist. Was there Catholic as well, maybe? I mean, it was just like all all of that. But he was very clear to say, like, but we all love each other and we all get along. And as I think about this country right now, even the world, like, there's so much divide Republican, Democrat, uh, white, black, stand for the anthem, don't stand for the anthem. Like, there's just so much hate. And I listen to that and I'm just like, man, like, they all have different professed faiths that they stand by fully, yet. And come together and love each other like that's, you know, no. I, I think that's yeah. a, a thing that shouldn't be glossed over. So that's what I took yeah. from it. Um, awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get into today. We've got uh, we've got a guest, Keith. You wanna you wanna do yeah. the
0: intro for? Yeah. So her? today today we have Rocky Voria. Uh, Rocky is a chief of staff to a Microsoft uh, corporate vice president of inside sales. She's the co-chair of Women at Microsoft and part of the Forbes Business Development Council. She's passionate about advancing millennials and women in the business. And I will tell you, she is the representation of what you should look at millennials as. She's a tremendous example of the positive of millennials as so much negative press gets made about them. So what did we talk about, Rod? We get into her parents having an arranged marriage,
1: but we talk about that, her dad leaving when she was young, um, women in the workplace and specifically like her mom and how her mom uh, is, has kind of molded and shaped where she is now. Uh, we get into the uh, um, the Tiger Mom, the, the book that uh, was written on Tiger Amy Chua's book, um, traditional Indian culture and how that meshes with American Indian culture defining success we talk about millennials a little bit uh
0: what else is there anything else no i I think that sums it up pretty pretty well and i say enjoy the show but do take technical note we've had some technical difficulties of late (laughs) we have a little bit of technical difficulty just know it's not bad editing it just is so is this the vacuum in the background no it's just some bad noise on my side so um enjoy the show and uh as always more in common expose evaluate evolve
2: you know like as a millennial and a female there have been times where people have told me you know act like a man because you work in the technology field which is very male dominated or hide your age so that you can gain more credibility at work successful simply because I feel like I don't have to do those things. I mean, I don't subscribe to the notion that I need to hide any of those qualities. In fact, I think that I actually try to leverage them to look at things differently, to invent innovative processes.
0: Welcome to the show, Rocky. We're excited to have you.
2: Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I mean, I've listened to some of your episodes. I think the work that you guys are doing to draw light to some of these important topics is a really great way to start the dialogue on conversations that really matter. And sometimes we're too afraid to talk about them.
0: Well, you rock for being here. Well, and you said something (laughs)
1: earlier when we were talking, like that whole thing, like just starting. That was your tip towards, uh, I asked you, you, how do you navigate difficult conversations? And you said, just start maybe let's go into that just a little bit, because I thought that was a very poignant answer. And I I would love to go on into that on the air a little bit and uh, get some of your thoughts on it.
2: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think too often, we're just sort of afraid to have the conversation because nowadays, I mean, there's so much scrutiny around the way you're teeing up a conversation. How are you saying it? Are you using the right language? Are you being offensive? And I actually think it's sort of scaring people a little bit and um, when in fact it should actually be doing the opposite. And so I guess my advice is it's important to be brave and to just sort of have the conversations and to surround yourself with people who I guess are willing to call you out when you might not be teeing it up in the appropriate way. But if you don't start, I mean, it's not really going to go anywhere. So I guess that's my biggest piece of advice there. It's great that you guys are sort of leading the charge in how to do that.
0: I love it. So let's, let's dive a little deeper. What, what got you to that point? Where, where's Rocky from? What's the background? Uh, Tell, tell folks a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, my family is Indian, but my two older sisters and I were born and raised in the U S and I grew up in Colorado, spent the majority of my life there, including college. Um, I grew up with my mom and my two older sisters who are seven and 10 years older than me. So I'm definitely the baby in the family. Uh, my dad wasn't really in the picture hasn't been since I was probably around four years old. And um, I think this experience absolutely shaped who I am today. I think when a lot of people hear that detail about me, they sort of think, Oh, I get it, because um, I'm so passionate about women's empowerment and equipping women with the tools necessary to succeed. And it's just sort of been a huge part of my life in different ways. Um but I guess in terms of my childhood, I mean, I had an interesting experience, I think, for a variety of reasons. Um, number one, as I mentioned, my dad sort of left our family when I was around four. It was pretty abrupt. I mean, mm-hmm. to this day, I don't really know why. I don't know if it had anything to do with sort of like a formal mental health challenge that he may have been grappling with. I mean, to, ha- to give a little bit of context on just sort of my parents' marriage, actually, um, they had an arranged marriage in India, which is mm-hmm. very typical my mom was 17 when she was engaged to my dad, who was 30 at the time. And so they sort of, um, oh. they came from very different backgrounds. I mean, socioeconomically, uh, my dad had sort of a, a typical kind of story where he he uh, came from a poor background. And I mean, he was super smart, really invested in his education. He was the type of person who had to walk a mile or two or whatever to find that light post to be able to do his homework under every single day. And so he just grew up in a very oh. different situation than I did. And my mom, on the other hand came from a pretty affluent family from India. So they were just very different had came from different backgrounds and I think weren't really matched um, appropriately. And it's kind of interesting because I sort of think back and I wonder uh what sort of made your parents, I guess, decide that this was sort of the right family for you because their experiences seem so different? Um, and I think, I mean, my interpretation, it sort of has to do with some of the cultural reasons there. I mean, in India, one of the things that's really important is just sort of future opportunity and future success. And I think with my dad, I mean, he was extremely hardworking, very smart. Um, he got a full scholarship to go to Russia for school. And then he ended up getting a job in the United States. And I mean, that's just sort of like the immigrant American dream to be able to have a life in America. And so I think that was one of the reasons probably why um, my mom's family thought he would be a great match for her. And lo and behold, they didn't have necessarily the best marriage. And and that's sort of how it ended. But I mean, regardless I'm not Necessarily here to bash him or anything. I mean, he's my dad. He gave me my life. And while I don't support some of the decisions that he made, I know that in my heart of hearts, I have to believe that he was and is a good person. And maybe there were some other factors in his life that I probably don't know about and maybe never will. And that's okay. Um, but whatever the reason was for him leaving, it was abrupt and it came as a surprise to all of us. I mean, I was young, so I don't really remember all the details. And frankly, it didn't affect me as much uh, as it did my sisters who were much older and had grown up in a dual family household, but it meant.
1: Cause they were like 11 and 14. Yeah, exactly.
2: And it's interesting because um, both my sisters are like geniuses. So they both graduated from high school at 16. And so oh, wow. basically, I mean, I spent the majority of sort of my childhood kind of as um, almost, I guess, an only child in a sense, just because my sisters had gone to college pretty early. Um And so when my dad left, I mean, it meant that my mom just sort of had to get jobs and she had to figure it out. And you have to understand that. I mean, she was a woman who had never really paid a bill on her own. She stayed home. She raised the kids. She performed some of the traditional Indian wife duties. Um, she had never had the opportunity to go to college. And when this sort of happened to her, she had to just sort of figure it out and find a way to make it work. And I remember at one given time, she was working three jobs. And I mean, she hustled for sure to make sure that me and my sisters had the opportunities that we had. I think we were really fortunate because we had a home, a beautiful home. I mean, my dad was and is a very hard worker. And a lot of people don't have that. Um, but we sort of lived in what I would consider to be white suburbia. It was an affluent neighborhood. It was in the foothills. It was beautiful. It was primarily white, not surprisingly. Um, but yeah, my mom just sort of had to find ways to make it work. And I think what I find so interesting about a lot of this was actually, I guess, the reaction from the Indian community. Because I think one might expect that in a situation like this, it would sort of be your own people who come to emotionally support you and to provide help and counsel during difficult situations. But it was actually the opposite, which I think is really strange and unfortunate, in my opinion. And part of it, I think, is cultural. I think there's sort of this mentality where you sometimes just jump to blame the woman in the situation. I think people assumed that, oh, maybe my mom must have done something wrong, I guess, to to lead my dad to leave. And that was just so inaccurate. I mean, she was an amazing mother and a wife. And Even if she wasn't, I still don't think that necessarily gives you permission to just kind of walk out on your three young children. But there was this weird stigma, I guess, against the whole thing. And then when they eventually had divorced, I mean, that's like a really bad thing in Indian culture. And so it was something that was interesting to see her navigate through and just sort of not necessarily having the support of her own people, which was um, challenging and interesting.
0: How long were your parents married? I mean, considering how old how much older your your sisters are,
2: so I mean, I guess I would say like they came to the u s nineteen seventy eight I mean they technically stayed married until I was around twelve, so they had probably a thirty eight year marriage or so, but the majority of that time, my dad wasn't actually around, so it Separate. took them a while for them to actually formally get divorced because of the stigma around it. Um, but I mean, I think as, as we kind of reflect as a family on all the people who helped during that time, it was primarily all Americans. I mean, not, not our own community. I mean, there were some Indians who were really good to us, of course, but the majority was a lot of white people and a lot of Hispanic people and just people in the community. And, uh, it was my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Nattress, who let me come to school early and stay late so that I wasn't home alone when my mom was at work. And so we could, save money on childcare, was my next door neighbor, the wrestlers, who drove me to and from school every single day for years and had me at oh. home for dinner after school and treated me like their own child because my mom wasn't able to pick me up from school. It was my mom's friend, Cynthia, who, interestingly enough, is actually now the Attorney General of Colorado, um, oh, wow. who sat down with her and gave her counsel on how to handle a formal divorce and explained to her culturally, it might not be okay for you. But in America, this happens every single day, you're in a bad situation, you need to get out. And here's how we're going to help you and do it. And so all of those people, I mean, they might not know it, but they played such a key and pivotal role in our lives. And I'm so thankful for that. But it is really interesting. I think that it was sort of um, people who aren't in your natural environment that are kind of there for you. And as I said, I think it's cultural
0: how big was the indian community in your in where you lived in colorado like to gain context on on that component of them not necessarily being the support structure that you had
2: growing up it wasn't huge i mean if you look at places like new jersey or california there are, there are really big indian populations out there at the time in colorado there weren't that many but there were enough i mean there are indian events and things like that but um we weren't that integrated into that community. It's kind of interesting because I sort of look at some of my friends today who are Indian who grew up with like all Indian friends their whole lives. And there are so many things you can share culturally that you can just identify with these people. And I didn't really have that growing up. And I think part of it was just sort of the stigma, I think associated with some of the situations that my family was left in. And, and it's unfortunate.
0: Do you, did your mom, <clears throat> when you were growing up, integrate a lot of the Indian culture obviously that she grew up with um having having immigrated here. Um, did she did she build that into your into your household and as a result Do you find uh, a pull like what is that pull for you to be a part of that Indian community, knowing that even growing up, it wasn't necessarily a big part of your life outside of your
2: household? Yes. I mean, my mom definitely placed a big emphasis on making sure we still knew Indian culture and values. And so, I mean, even though she had to work a lot and even though we weren't necessarily integrated into the Indian community as much as some other families, I guess, in the community, um, she still made it a really big point to ensure that we understood where we came from and that we were celebrating holidays and that we were going to the temple on the weekends and stuff like that. And so, um, I mean, for me, it's one of the things I think a lot about because um, I'm already sort of once removed. I mean, I try to stay as much as connected as possible. My cousins make fun of me when I go to India. They call me Farang, which basically means foreigner in Hindi. Because even when I try to speak Hindi, I sound like, Basically an idiot. An American. Yeah, yeah an American
0: <laughs> speaking. Exactly. An and
2: so, yeah. I mean, I think I think my mom really tried and, and it's something that we still um, have. That's a big part of our lives. But I, I think it's difficult when you're surrounded by a majority of people who are in a different um, community than you. You just have to kind of make more of an effort. And I, I think and as I think about just sort of how I want to raise my kids, regardless of who I marry one day and whatnot. I mean, that's going to be a big part of their lives, too.
1: I, uh, I've i actually heard that one of my buddies, Raj, up in uh, the Bay Area, he talks about that when he goes back to India. It's kind of like the American Indian cousins hang out and then like the Indian cousins hang out and they kind of talk about each other, but it's not like
0: uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Do either you or your sisters have any contact with your dad at this point or have you forever since he left?
2: I haven't. Uh, and I, I think A little bit. I mean, my my middle sister sort of talks to him from time to time. But no, I mean, he hasn't made much of an effort, honestly. So, I, once again, I have to say there must be something else sort of going on with him, I suppose. But um, no, we don't really have much contact with him. I haven't seen him in uh, trying to think. So, I don't don't get this wrong. Probably, uh, I don't know, like 15 years or so. Oh,
0: wow.
2: Yeah, it's been a long time. But, I mean, it's interesting because... I, I personally feel like, um, I never felt like I was missing out on anything, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. I think a and- lot of people sort of, sort of say, oh, it must have been really hard growing up without a dad. But the thing is, I, I just had three moms. I mean, my sisters are so much older than me that they were sort of parents in a sense. I mean, they had to grow up fast too. They had to sort of raise me in a sense as well when my mom was at work and everything before they went off to college. And I think when you don't grow up with something, you sort of don't know what you're missing out on. And, I actually think I, I had a great childhood. I mean, it was definitely challenging, but I had a loving family. I had food on the table, a roof over my head. I mean, what more can you, what more can you ask for?
1: Um, you mentioned the cultural piece where um, it seemed like there's a lot of blame on your mom for the divorce. Uh, and I wonder, because I'm thinking like um, uh, Indian culture is very patriarchal, very male Driven male dominant. Yeah. I'm just curious to get your take on like whether you thought about that from the from the cultural side of it and the male dominance. And then what do you see in that now? Like uh, with Indian friends, like do you see that that shifting. male dominance that that? Yeah,
2: I definitely see it shifting. I mean, I, I go to India every few years, whether it's to visit my family or for work or whatever, and it's a different world out there. I mean. My family, actually, I think is a little bit more progressive. I mean, I don't think there's any of my cousins or anything who have had an arranged marriage or anything like that. And I know for a fact, that's not something that my mom's advocating for, for me or my sisters. It's never been on the table, I think, obviously, because of her experience. And she wants us to be happy and fall in love and whatever. Um, so, I mean, I it's hard to say, I guess, for me, because I've been born and raised in the U.S. But when I do go back, I definitely still see a lot of that authoritarian patriarchal society where you're just sort of expected to be a certain way, I guess. And in the U S you definitely still see some of that, but I, um, I mean, I have so many friends who are powerful, young Indian women who are doing amazing things. And that's just sort of changed, I think for our generation, which, uh, we're, we're very fortunate, I think to be born in the time that we had and living where we are.
0: It brings up an interesting kind of pivot point, um, in a way, because your mom i don't know what remarriage is like uh maybe you can talk a little bit about that because your mom coming from an arranged situation having a four-year-old still at home and 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 two um, young women uh but she didn't seek another man. That patriarchal f- household. She worked instead. She yeah. decided to be the provider. What was that for her? Have you ever talked to her about that? And obviously, I would. I, that seems to have had a major impact on you and how you've evolved
2: um, uh, growing up. Yeah, I mean, she never really considered. I think just finding another guy you know i think for her it was just not a question that she wanted to make sure that she was focused on her kids and she got a job to support us and i think also i mean part of her in the back of her mind um i guess in the indian culture and i mean i think hopefully everywhere when you marry someone you sort of marry someone and you're making a commitment for your life and I think, you know, as I mentioned, there's a huge stigma associated with divorce in the Indian culture in particular. And so I think she sort of had this hope that eventually we'd be able to resolve things and be a happy family one day. And Mm. so her focus was never to sort of find somebody new and to build a new life. I think when she sort of got to the point where she realized, okay, we need to go through with a divorce and, and all of that, and she sort of closed that chapter of her life she actually still didn't ever seek, um, a second marriage. And today she's still her own very strong independent woman. And I don't necessarily think that she's closed off to it per se, but she has completely and totally dedicated her life to making sure that me and my sisters have every opportunity possible. And so, um, now that I think we're all sort of older and successful and we've paved our own path and everything, I mean, um, Maybe it's something she's, she's open to now. And I think the world has sort of changed and societal norms have changed where that would be a little bit more okay. But even five, 10 years ago, I mean, it, it was sort of looked down upon, I think. And it's something that, that I think is really challenging because, I mean, as you look at a lot of our family friends and stuff in America, I mean, it's totally normal to get divorced and it's totally normal to get married sometimes multiple times and stuff. But it wasn't necessarily like that for her growing up. So she's just sort of had to navigate through some of the challenges, I'm sure. Of that. But I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I have talked to her a little bit about it. And I think that's just sort of where she's been at in her, her mindset.
1: Based on some of our previous conversation, would you, would you refer to, would you call your mom a tiger mom? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
2: So I think that's a great segue and we can explain to some of the listeners a little bit about what that is. So
1: that was the next
0: question. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think, I guess because of my childhood, um, and my mom's, values on just sort of moving forward and turning tragedy into triumph and all of these things, um, there was an expectation that that we would have to achieve a lot of things on our own. I mean, she still pushed us extremely hard, even though she wasn't necessarily able to sit at home with me side by side and do my homework every night. I mean, there was definitely an expectation that I needed to work hard and that success would follow. And so... Um, I think, you know, one of the things that was very clear to both my sisters and myself was that, uh, we, if we want to go to college, we need to get a scholarship, frankly. And so, um, I was fortunate enough to get a full scholarship to go to Colorado College. It was $200,000. Um, it made it possible for me to be able to go to a great liberal arts private school. And I think part of that was just sort of like there was this innate expectation that she had of us. And I think it's a very, um, Eastern approach, I think. I mean, basically, I guess to share with listeners a little bit about the whole concept of the Asian tiger mom, it was kind of a phrase that was coined by uh, Amy Chua, and she wrote a book called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Um, And tiger parenting is kind of like a term that refers to, I guess, the process of parents being strict and demanding and pushing their children to succeed academically and they have to attain high levels of, I guess, academic and scholastic achievement and stuff. But it's also known for sort of using authoritarian parenting methods and child rearing. And in the book, Amy talks about making her kids practice piano like five hours a day or something and never really praising them and always pushing them to be better. and. Um, and I guess for, for Americans who might not be listening, who are trying to find a way to identify, like sometimes it's um, compared to, I guess, like the American stage mom. Um, mm-hmm. And her mm-hmm. book actually generated a lot of controversy, I think, mm-hmm. primarily yeah, from sure. Americans who are super outraged that such parenting exists. I mean, people are calling her evil. Um, but I, my personal view, I actually think the backlash that she got is really funny. I mean, the book in general is kind of satirical. And like, she talks about how when her kids weren't listening, she like, um, she burned their stuffed animals or something like that. And it's (laughs) kind of hyperbole. But for me and a lot of my Asian friends who read it, we were like, oh yeah, that's totally my mom. I had to wake up every day at 5am and practice for the spelling bee or whatever, you know, I mean, everybody sort of, um can identify with those experiences and so my mom was very much like that i mean definitely not to the extent in the book i mean but but there were a lot of things that were very similar i mean she pushed us really hard she made us know that education was absolutely the key to success there's no question about that we had to work really hard we had to earn scholarships we had to go to reputable schools um and frankly i actually think a lot of people can benefit from such an approach i know that i did I think I look around and I sort of see there's a lot of really nice, gifted kids out there, but um, they can sometimes be self indul- indulgent and they can make excuses for themselves and they're not always focused on the right things. And I think it's really important, I guess, to have a parent who sort of instills certain values in you so that you're always working towards something um, greater.
1: Seems like it probably probably builds a little resilience um, in there, you know. And you were thinking about. Uh, comparing it for American listeners, I kind of thought of sports. I'm thinking of the cultural value. So, like, it seems like the Eastern is more on education and, like, quality of character. And here in America, it's like, eh, yeah, that's too strict. But when it comes to football, like, my son's going to be pro, which he's not. But, like, we're up at, you know, 4 a.m., working out, eating, practice. Like, we're traveling every weekend. Like, it's interesting where the – as you said that, where my head went and – uh, assigning values to where the hard work goes.
0: But I think, yeah. I think the, the approach, um, is interesting Which and you say there are some people that could benefit from it. Cause I would agree, but I think there are two pieces to it. One, there's the individual nature of the child, right? There's, especially in our culture, in American culture, where we are more individualistic, that that unique personality has a different approach to how it will respond to parenting if my mom was a tiger mom i probably would have run away from home i just i wouldn't have responded to that and at the same time there's a cultural element when you talk about the the eastern collectivist mentality there is a sentiment of I have to contribute not just for my personal success but for the success of those around me and it and it creates ecosystem that enables that tiger parenting approach a little bit more than i think in in western cultures so um but i I absolutely agree i think there's a place for it and i i mean there there's certainly extremes to it it's 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 a good perspective you have on it as it relates to you because i'm I'm sure there are people who you talk to who are like yeah drove me nuts and i hated it right
2: i think it's interesting because um what was interesting to me was to see the response of her daughters, because a lot of people said, oh, my God, I can't believe you would do this to your daughters. And her daughters actually sort of publicly came out and they put out statements saying that they're so thankful that their mom um, treated them the way that they did. And they are actually both extremely successful and whatnot. And so I think you're absolutely right, Keith. I mean, everything in moderation, but every family, every cultural background, et cetera, needs to sort of figure out what works for them. I'm not a mom myself yet, but I hope to be one day. And as I think about that, I mean, there are definitely some tiger mom traits that I think that I'm going to instill in my kids too. And, um, I think we all just need to figure out what works for our individual families.
0: So, so a couple of things and kind of want to steer this into where you are today. And obviously your background has, has led you to, to your, your drive and what you're trying to do and, how you're ultimately trying to continue to grow as a professional and as a person, but you've referenced success uh, a few times. Um, The things to be successful. What do you define success for yourself? What does success mean for Rocky? That is
2: for me. I think success is accomplishing my goals. I guess I know that sounds very vague and high level, but um, I mean, success is obviously very different to every person, but I think for me, it's just sort of, um, the freedom to be who I am and to be rewarded for that. Like, I think one of the things I think a lot about is just sort of, um, how do I emphasize my unique qualities and contribute in the workplace and society or whatever? Because, um, you know, like as a millennial and a female, there have been times where people have told me, you know, act like a man because you work in the technology field, which is very male dominated or hide your age so that you can gain more credibility at work or whatever. But, um, I feel successful simply because I feel like I don't have to do those things. I mean, I don't subscribe to the notion that I need to hide any of those qualities. In fact, I think that I actually um, try to leverage them to look at things differently, to invent innovative processes, etc. And so I guess that to me is success. I mean, a lot of people I think are very focused on chasing title and promotions and stuff like that. And Look, I'm a millennial. Those things are important to me too. And that is, is what sort of helps me to find success a little bit as well. Um, but I feel like I'm still kind of at the beginning of my journey. I, and hopefully it's all uphill from here. But I've been fortunate enough to have some really great experiences where I, I guess I would categorize myself as successful or having achieved success in the way that, that I look at success, but I think there's still a long way to go. And I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like in the long term. But um, it's it's a hard question to answer, I think.
0: Yeah. You said part of it is achieve, yeah, the high level is achieving my goals. And sounds like one of those goals is to be genuine to who you are and travel that journey as Rocky and nobody else. Right. But what what are the goals? Like, Like collectively, what, what, what do you see as your goals um, over that long journey?
2: Well, I think I have a variety of different personal and professional goals. On the personal side, I mean, I want to have a family one day. I want to be a mom. I want to have kids. But at the same time, on the professional side, I'm extremely ambitious, as you both know. And in terms of um, where I see myself in the long run, I mean, I'd love to be running a Fortune 500 company one day. And so everything that I do, I guess, um, I think is sort of a stepping stone toward that. And, and hopefully, that'll be my path. But at the end of the day, you just sort of never know what's going to happen. And there might be a situation where when I have kids, I completely pivot and want to do something different, like start my own foundation or company or something like that. So mm-hmm. like I said at the beginning, I want to make sure that I'm not over-engineering my life. I tend to do that from time to time, but I'm trying to just sort of be a little bit more open and take things as they come. But um, I think it's really important, though, to sort of map out your short-term and your long-term goals so that anytime something comes your way, you can sort of stop yourself and ask yourself... Does this align to those types of things? I mean, is it helping me um, create the type of person that I want to be so that I can achieve those goals in the short and long term?
1: With uh, respect to success, either on the surface or from other people looking in, you happen to have gone to a very prestigious university. And why don't we go into that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I was very fortunate enough to go to Oxford for graduate school. Uh, once again, I got a scholarship in order to make that possible. But it's interesting because I think people assume a lot about your background when you say you've gone to Oxford. And I definitely experienced that even when I was there. Um, and and there's definitely reasons why, of course. I mean, I think The Guardian last year actually reported Oxford has like the lowest proportion of working class students in the UK. Not surprisingly, it was listed on um, on the list of, quote, top 10 universities where super rich kids go. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I think they they do attempt a lot to, I think, not enroll students based on how wealthy they are. But the reality is a huge proportion of the students are rich. And I mean, I remember a few years ago, there was like a, a very rich Arab student uh, who advertised for a private tutor to help him Uh, earn his place at Oxford, and he offered him $200,000. And I was like, wait, what can I just be your tutor? Like, I should just scrap out of school and do this. (laughs) Um, No, but it's funny. I mean, that's just sort of, I was definitely surrounded by a lot of people who grew up in very different experiences than me and came from not just sort of affluent backgrounds, but like super affluent backgrounds. And so um, it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, just sort of like, even now what I'm doing, when people hear that, I think, I think people sort of assume that I had a certain childhood. And as you guys heard, I definitely didn't. And so, um, I think it's really important, I guess, to, to think through things like imposter syndrome, I guess, like when you're there, um, it, you sort of have a moment where you're just kind of like, hmm, do I deserve to be here? And the answer is yes. Like when, anytime you have those negative head, um, those negative thoughts, I guess, go into your head. I think it's really important to just sort of shake them out as quickly as possible because the reality was I earned my place there just like everybody else. And I had a different path in getting there. I mean, it wasn't money. It wasn't necessarily having uh, someone in my family who had gone there or whatever. But um, I think it's really important to just sort of stay true to yourself and not be discouraged when, when those opportunities come your way.
1: I had I had the thought go through my head when I first met you and I heard Oxford. And I was like, oh, she must be rich. And then, <laughs> like, as you were talking, I was deconstructing that further. And I was like, I think the uh, the initial assumption was actually that you must be really smart and rich. And and I think there's this thing that happens culturally. It's like, okay, well, you do have to be intelligent to get in Oxford. Like, that's that's a fact. But, like, there's this other thing that happens is, like, uh, wealth and intelligence get – Uh, equated to each other so like if you don't have money then you must not be smart because you're not earning money like if you were smart then you would have money and um i think it's an it's an interesting thing that happens and then because i remember when you told me i was like wait what you got went there on scholarship Mm -hmm. like does not compute
0: my brain just broke so now you're you're in tech and what's i mean what's that experience been like for you
2: I, my experience um, has been fantastic, actually. And I think part of it is just sort of where I've been in the company. So I think when you're on the actual technical side, so when you're doing engineering and things like that, the experience is a little bit different. For me, I've always been on the business side. So things like sales, business development, financing, corporate roles, etc. And so um, it's not... It's not as challenging, I think, as or the challenges are at least a little bit different. So on the business side, I mean, I think my experiences have been really positive, actually. I mean, there's still huge challenges for women in the workplace in general. And I mean, tons of statistics around this. Like as of last year, only 24% of people in STEM were women. If you look at the number of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, only 21 of them are female. There are more Fortune 500 CEOs named John than women, which is a sure indicator that the glass ceiling is still firmly in place in corporate America. Um, You see that in venture capital, only 2% of funding actually last year went to female founders. For uh, females who are colored founders, it's like something like 0.03% or something just ridiculous. It's
1: not even a whole percent. No, it's
2: not even a whole percent, which is really disappointing. (laughs) And so... Um, I mean, there's just a lot of research and talk around this. It's obviously a really hot topic. It's something that I'm super passionate about. But um, like for me, I've been very uh, fortunate in a, in a variety of ways. I mean, I've had a great experience. I've had supportive managers, mentors, male and female. I've been promoted pretty aggressively compared to other people. I've been able to travel the world. So I've been really lucky. But one of the things that I try to always remind myself is, that just because I'm succeeding in this environment and I found ways to succeed in this environment doesn't mean that there's equity. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to remember because I there's a lot of people who don't necessarily have the path or experience that I've had, whether it's because of uh, the organization that they're in or the manager that they have. And so part of it is just sort of... um, Honestly, kind of like a, a sense of luck. Like, do you have the right managers and mentors and people around you supporting you, or whatever? Not everybody has that, and so um, even though I've been fortunate enough to have a great experience and I think I've been relatively successful, I still spend a lot of time thinking about how do we make sure that that everybody else can be too.
1: That's huge, and I I wish more people would take a step back and think about that because so often it's like, well, that hasn't been my experience, so it must not exist right. or People I've had people look at me and say, Well, you like you're a black dude and you you're at a tech company, you're doing okay, so it must be fair. And it's like, No, 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 like I had a very different experience than a lot of people that look like me and I have am very fortunate to be where I am and that's why I spend the time that I do trying to help others because it's not It's not equitable at
0: all. Yeah, I really appreciate the the, the perspective of not forgetting where you come from, not forgetting the reality and saying, hey, you know, I want to on my way up, I want to bring as many people with me versus, yep. I'm I'm there. I did my thing. And that might I, I wonder, do you think that has anything to do with that Eastern cultural upbringing that is a little bit more collectivist
2: than it is individualistic? I think you hit the nail on the head, just sort of this concept of lift while you climb. And I think you're right. It has to do sort of culturally. But I think more than anything, it sort of has to do with the fact that every experience that I've ever had and that my family has ever had has frankly been thanks to the support of others. And I think when you have that sort of in the back of your mind, it kind of reminds you that you do have an obligation to pay it forward. And I think a lot about that. I mean, even though I'm relatively young in my career, how can I still be paying it forward? And there's so many things that we can do uh, to be able to do that. And so, um, I think the other thing that has sort of um, influenced me in my approach there is uh, just sort of seeing my mom's path. I mean, I obviously talked a lot about the experience that she faced and the fact that she ended up having to work three jobs and sort of hustling to support me and my two older sisters. But she is also um, the a real example of accomplishing the American dream. Honestly, I mean, not only her immigrant story or whatever, but even after all of the things we already talked about, she ended up um, starting her own company. She started the National U.S.-India Chamber of Commerce to basically facilitate oh, wow. trade between the two countries. She's the CEO of it now. And it's interesting because um it was basically kind of around the, the time where a lot of globalization was happening and people were really nervous about sort of outsourcing jobs to places like India and stuff like that. She actually said, Hey, I think we should be looking at this differently. I think this is actually an opportunity for American businesses and for people all over the world. And that's what, um, influenced her to create the chamber to basically promote bilateral trade and whatnot. And, um, even in spite of, uh, all of the things that she was faced with, she was extremely active in her community, which is where I think I get a lot of my drive for that from as well. So she was always involved in all kinds of, um, just sort of like Asian Pacific Islander chambers and uh, communities and councils and all of these things that she was involved in. And that's how she became very well connected in the Colorado area, which became very valuable to her. She kind of launched her own company and whatnot. Um, It led to a lot of great things. Like she was on a council for minority business enterprises, which supported the Obama administration. And so she was an advisor to that. And so Um, even though, you know, her situation started very differently, just looking at her success today and where she is now without having a college education, without having the experiences that I had, it gives me a lot of hope for the impact that I can make and the impact that my niece and my future kids can make and things like that. And I think that sort of leads me to, um, to where I get a lot of my passions around just sort of being relentless, being resilient. Uh, Being a true contributor in society, lifting while you climb, bringing others along the way, paying it forward, etc.
0: It's an interesting um, representation of the importance not only of someone who parents you a certain way, but they live the way they parent. Mm -hmm. Um, And your mom wasn't just a Mm -hmm. tiger mom that said, do this, do this, do this. She was also an example Um, an amazing one, nonetheless, quite an impressive background. Uh, and, and it's something I think about a lot, especially being a dad and being that example, um, for, for, for my children and currently child, uh, part of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, mm. but yeah. How old were you
1: when she started her, um, when she started her company?
2: It's been at least 10 years. And so I think, so interestingly enough, I mean, Anytime she went and did all of those um, social and community activist things that she was doing, she brought me with her actually. And at the time it was really annoying. I remember sitting in her, you know, Asian Pacific Islander council meetings or her governor's council meetings or whatever. And I would be like the little kid who was by herself in the corner with her coloring book and like my McDonald's happy meal or whatever it was. And, um, In hindsight, that was some of the best experiential training I could have ever had in my life, just sort of seeing how she navigated through uh, conversations with men and how she navigated through negotiations and just her passion for all of those things, I think, really shaped who I am. And um, I, I love that. I mean, as I think about when I have kids one day, too. Um, I want to make sure that I'm sort of giving them exposure to the type of woman that I am and the potential that they can have and stuff, because I think we sort of underestimate some of those types of things. But it's really important, I think, to give kids exposure to that kind of stuff at a young age.
1: For sure. I mean, they learn a lot from books and what you tell them, but they learn so much more from seeing it in action. Like.
0: Because they, they, uh, you got to see that it's possible, right? Like I can be told a thousand times I can do it, but if I don't have, I mean, this speaks to representation in the media that we've talked about before, Rodney. Um, and, you know, just that experience being able to look out and say, oh, this is possible. Um, because if, if someone, if if someone you can't relate to, if, if there isn't someone that exists. That, it's hard to be something exactly. you can't see. Yeah. Um,
1: it's hard to be it if you can't see it. So, we're talking about your career and it being very positive and not having many challenges. But earlier, you did mention that you had somebody say, act like a man. Did that happen to you? Like, and, and what kind of context? I'm curious, like, what what the hell were they? <laughs> what, what was this? What? Somebody said so that? So, nobody
2: ever said the exact words, but it was very much implied. And yeah, I mean, I hear that. I hear it quite a bit. I mean, I think... So I, I um, am in a sales organiz- yeah Wait, can, I,
1: can I ask you, how do you know it was implied? And I'll yeah. tell you why I asked that in a it's second. That's a good question. But yeah.
2: That is a great question, actually. Um, I think the language that they were using, I mean, it was something around just sort of, you're in a very male-dominated field, and you need to learn how to play the game and walk the walk and talk the talk. So it's pretty clear to me that it was implied.
1: And I, just, I ask because... Um there have been several instances in my instances in my life where I'm like, man, I'm pretty sure that that was racist, or like <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they they did that because of how I look, and other people I've I've recounted it, and people are like, how do you know? And and a lot of times there's not a way to explain it other than a feel. So I was just you
2: bring up a great point because I think we oftentimes sometimes internalize things a little bit differently than they're they're meant to be and i've I've actually noticed um an even more heightened sense of that in today's day and age with things like me too going on and all that it's like people are sort of honestly scared to talk at all uh, because of just sort of like the intense scrutiny they're getting around all these things and so it's a really important point that you bring up because we want to make sure that we're we're not misinterpreting things, that we're giving people the opportunity to speak, that we're being as inclusive as possible. But it's challenging in today's day and age where social media is kind of heightening everything.
1: How How do we make it safe for people to say things? Because I'll say um, over the past, I, I'll say four or five years, not just where I work now, but other places, just talking to people, I've noticed specifically with older white men. There is an angst. There is a mm-hmm. discomfort. Um with the idea of like diversity and like, oh does that mean I don't have a place or I can't say anything like I've I've heard people say, like, I can't say anything or like and it seems to be growing, this this pitch, this fever pitch of like
0: discomfort. Especially as women continue to Women, minorities build, grow in the ecosystem. I mean, for millennia, it's it's been a, a male dominated world, um, and by force in many instances. Well, um,
1: and my question on it is like, how do we how do we make it a safe place so that every because like it's it's a tough thing, right? Because we're trying to make it more inclusive. We're trying to make it so that people that have never had a seat at the table can have a seat. Um, at the same time correcting behaviors and language of of things that are just completely that are just completely unacceptable but but at the same time like the people there's people that are there that are trying to figure it out like in real time like maybe they maybe it's not so much that they used to use inappropriate language for women at work they just don't know what is like they're just uncomfortable because they've literally never worked with women. So there's like, I don't know, like, I don't know if I'm acceptable or not. So how do like, how do we think about that? How do we?
2: I think that's a great question, because I think that the prevalence of these topics actually have almost widened the gap in a sense and made people afraid Mm -hmm. to have these conversations, as we mentioned. And um, I've seen this sort of pan out in a variety of different ways. As an example, I've seen um, men being afraid to mentor women. Now, as an example, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they are They're afraid to take a woman mentee out to lunch or whatever for fear that there's going to be some sort of backlash around that or or whatever. And I actually think that some of these issues are sort of perpetuating the cycle and making it even worse because people are so scared. And so your question is really important around just sort of how do we make it possible so that people don't feel like that so that that doesn't continue to happen? I think it's a really tough one. I mean, First of all, I think people need to just get a little bit smarter about exercising the right judgment. I mean, one of the things that uh, men have asked me a little bit because I lead the women's group at my company, they say, well, um, like, how, how do I mentor a female or whatever? And I say, you just have to use your judgment, like maybe take him out to lunch instead of dinner or whatever. I mean, like for me, I'm a chief of staff to one of our corporate vice presidents. She's a female. Uh it's not uncommon that I spend time in her hotel room at midnight prepping for something the next day, but if she was a man, I would never even consider going into the hotel room at any time of the day and so I think those are really basic concepts, but people need to just sort of be a little bit more thoughtful in their approach and and think a little bit more before they're making some of these decisions but I mean it goes back to what we were talking about the whole whole thing around this is just you have to start and When somebody says something that's not appropriate or they didn't tee it up in the right way, I think it's up to us to just sort of call them out and do it in a professional way that doesn't put them on the spot and makes them scared to ever say anything again. But we're never going to fix the cycle unless we're actually telling people, Hey, what you did was actually maybe wrong. Um, and there's actually an example of this where I sort of called out one of my male coworkers where, um, you know, he, he was mentioning basically that one of his female employees had gone on maternity leave and she had just come back and she has you know, three young kids at home. And so he's been trying to give her a little bit of space and stuff. And so when there's been opportunities to travel to visit some of the customers and whatnot, um, he doesn't want her to feel like she has to go. And so he's been asking some of the male colleagues on his team if they can go. And I told him, I said, I love your intentions. I think that's great but give her the choice. Don't make the choice for her. And I think that was a huge realization for him because he he didn't even think about it in that way. He thought he was doing Mm -hmm. the right thing. And um, he was very appreciative that I sort of, I had mentioned that to him because he asked her if she wanted to go on the travel trip. And she said, yes, absolutely. I need a week going away with my kids. I gotta get out. I'm dying here. (laughs) And so I think, yeah, so those are the situations where you just have to be really respectful and nice. I think when you're sort of, giving people this feedback so that they understand it. Because I think I like to always assume positive intent. I don't think people are doing these types of things because they mean it. I think that they just need a little bit of help and people to call them out.
1: And I'll say it feels really weird to be in the position where it's like, I got to educate you on like, okay, it's not appropriate to touch my hair (laughs) or ask me if you can touch my hair. Um, (laughs) But I have, but then I have to do it in a loving way. And, and I think that's the right answer. It's also weird. That's like the person that's trying to be treated equally has to be the bigger person and make it possible for other people to have the opportunity to learn or else it does what I think a lot of companies and a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of good intent around driving diversity. But I think to your, to some of what you were saying, I think it's having an a a rubber band effect to the opposite. I think it's it's widening the gap. It's making it harder to actually have real diversity um in a lot of instances and I say that
0: being a I black think it's a tech um, it's one of these you talk about it's it's got to be a culture, and this is part of i mean something I recently wrote about in in our blogs um regarding the culture I want to be a part of is, is that opportunity to challenge each other's thoughts in a way that is respectful it's not demeaning it's not um it it's not putting someone down for saying something. But giving us an opportunity to say, hey, wait a second, you know, wh- what do you mean by that? Or wh- where are we going with this? Because, you know, here's the reality of what you're saying. And I don't think it – and I think it has to be a broader cultural thing in the sense that it shouldn't just be Rocky and the person you're talking to if maybe there are multiple people around. But it's a, it's got to be a, a collect those who – are capable of delicately challenging don't leave it up just to the person who's potentially offended own up to it as well and you know we gotta we gotta be aware enough but also collectively you know look out for each other so that it, it is you know something that we evolve into over time the other one was hide your age what was the context on that
2: yeah, I'm trying to think. So I remember um, when I first started at the company, one of my one of my roles was a sales role. And we spent a lot of time on the phone with customers. And I remember someone made a comment to me, it's great that you're meeting with them in, on the phone, because um, you might not mm. get as much traction with them in person, because they'll see that you're young. And so that... That wasn't as much of a specific thing where they said hide your age to gain credibility, but it's something that I had heard multiple times, I think, especially in the first few years that I was at the company. And it's something I internalized a lot. And I was like, you know, maybe they're right. I mean, all these people around me who are in the exact same position and role and whatever, um, they're a lot older than me. So and am I supposed to be here, et cetera? I mean, it goes back to that whole imposter syndrome thing or whatever. And so, I mean, I. I frankly, now, it's Mm -hmm. funny because I use my age so much. In fact, I actually think it's why I'm in the job that I'm currently in. I mean, my manager is somebody who's been in the tech industry for 35 years. She's worked at pretty much every major tech firm in the industry. And I think part of why she hired me is because I offer a fresh perspective and I sort of challenge some of the traditional ways of thinking and whatnot. And so I just think it's really important... um, once you sort of get over that, is to to really start to emphasize your unique qualities and make sure that you don't feel like you have to repress them or hide them because that's what makes you who you are and it's what makes you a really contributing member of society.
1: Yeah, no, I was just gonna say I've 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 noticed the age thing, I felt the age thing, and. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, so I was just wondering what you meant there. So yeah. actually, cause like in our careers, like, cause we're the same age. So we're like days apart, Keith and I. Yeah. And, and until we met you, we thought we were doing pretty good in our careers. Cause like, we've always been the youngest on our teams. And so that definitely, it plays out a lot of different ways, uh, for us. And
0: for me, I've, I've, for the better part of my career have looked like I was just in college. and. Um, so I started wearing glasses because I was in a customer facing. Um, gave me a year or two, uh, so just just so I can sit down in the room and don't have to manage it, right? Right? It's like I, I just don't even want to deal with it. Is. So at least give myself some visual representation to manage their unconscious biases a little bit more.
2: Hi, um, and- I
0: I I I admire your ownership of it. I think it's a, a phenomenal thing because it's not easy to do.
2: Thanks, and I, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with that, with wearing glasses to look a little bit older. I mean, I dress much more professionally than most of my coworkers, and one of the reasons is because uh, of that. And I think uh, it, it definitely makes a difference. There are things that you can do to sort of make it work, and I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of.
0: Hmm. I I have to, you know, as we come up on time, there's this question that I have just been. Holding and it transitions out of everything that we've been doing because when you talk about, I talk to my wife my wife is a, a lot about this. She's in technology. She's more on the product and engin- she's not an engineer, but she's more in the product group um, than she is in sales at least as of today and has always had to navigate this ecosystem of a male dominated uh, tech world that oh, you know, she may have imposter syndrome in or feels like she has to up her game to make sure that she stays ahead of those stereotypes. And one of the things that you said earlier is that you, one of your goals is just to be Rocky, um, no matter what. And I imagine, you know, that Maybe part of that's you being a a young woman, a millennial versus someone who's been in technology a little bit longer. And now at that point where you're pushing forward and pushing forward, how do you like if you were to talk to anybody, like how do you do that? I mean, because you hear the stories all the time. I have to... I have to do this or this or this to make sure that the men don't treat me this way, this way or this way. And you don't seem to, to over engineer it as you say, and, and try to be, be the most sincere Rocky you can regardless.
2: Well, I think part of it is because it's just too hard to be two people at once. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always lived by the motto, be yourself and believe in yourself. I don't know who initially said it when, but I think it's just a great motto that I try to live by. And um I don't know, I've just sort of never had a problem with that. And I think it, it's fortunately because of sort of the life that I had, the, the, the experience that I had, probably the fact that I had my mom and my two older sisters to look up to. Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah. Your upbringing really shapes who you are and it's super important. And um, for people who might not have been as lucky as me to have a loving and supportive family or whatever, um, I think it's just really important to find other outlets to make sure that you have people who are building you up, whether it's formal therapy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that or um, finding managers, mentors, et cetera, to just um, make sure that you're surrounded by people who are lifting you up and and making you feel like you can be who you are.
1: Uh, as you're leading the women's group at the company you're at now, like what's your big focus right now? Like what what what's your big focus, and or what is the major conversation happening right now? Oh,
2: Gosh, there's so much that we think about. Um, <laughs> so much. <laughs> now I'm thinking.
1: <laughs> what what comes to the top of the heap? Like what's or or what's the like low hanging fruit? Like what's something that everybody can do to make it easier for um. For women in the workplace and the tech workplace, like just in general, like what's what are the things that people aren't thinking about that they should be?
2: One of the things that I think a lot about is just sort of seeing change for women in the workplace, and and one way we can do that is really focusing, I think, on getting more women in middle and upper management. Um, There's a lot of statistics around this. The percentage of women in upper management has been stagnant for pretty much a decade. It's like twenty four percent or something like that, and. I think part of that is because a lot of the career advice that's geared toward women, I think, is sort of centered around things like personal branding and confidence and networking, as opposed to tools that really actually increase business strategy and financial acumen. Um, so I listened to a TED Talk that I swear by. I love it. It's by a woman named Susan Colon-Tuono. She's the CEO of Leading Women. It's called The Career Advice That You'll Never Receive. And she talks a lot about this and it actually changed the way that I lead this group because she really talks about them. I mean, she says the reason women get stuck is, is actually because we're not giving them the same level of training on business and strategy and financial acumen as we are to men. And I think it's actually a really interesting way of thinking about it because in the talk, she says, you know, there was a man who was unintentionally sort of grooming a female and a male on his team. And he said, I never even thought about it. But while I was teaching the man the business, I was teaching the woman to be confident. And I think we see a lot of that, unfortunately, and I think it's sometimes unintentional. And so as I lead this women's group, I guess one of the things I think a lot about is how are we actually investing in more tangible skill development, whether it's a training around negotiation or self-efficacy or resilience or whatever. some really strategic tools that can actually help them get to that next level.
0: Cool. This is, I mean, we are at time and I'm just super thrilled that you you came onto the show and very happy to have had this conversation with you. And if you were to leave anything with with our audience around whatever it may be, conversation, women in the workplace, millennials, anything else that didn't even come up today, what, what would that be?
2: be yourself and believe in yourself. I mentioned it earlier, but I think that's a great way to summarize. I think all of the things that we've talked about as it relates to imposter syndrome, as it relates to resilience, as it relates to achieving your goals and all of those types of things. I mean, I think it's really important, I guess, to just sort of be authentic to who you are, emphasize those unique qualities. Don't be afraid to have tough conversations, because as you guys have actually put it, we have more in common than we do different. And I think um, we are all really individually um, powerful, but we are even more collectively strong. So it's important that we sort of do these things together and hopefully make some movement in the world.